Okay, and welcome to episode four of Three Shaped Heads. And please welcome Keith and Sam. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Good, good. Very good. Good drinks at the ready. They are absolutely fantastic. That's very good. And today, this is the first time we haven't got a topic. How do you feel about that? I'm a bit worried. You're a bit worried. Oh, it should, it should be all right. I, I usually have at least a few notes, but there's literally nothing on my screen whatsoever. <laughs> I've got I've got on my screen the uh, brew sheet for the beer I'm drinking because I wanted to be very on, on it this week with the uh, with the beer. Oh, very good. So you're not having the tea today then? No, 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 no. Well, that's good because it wasn't even loose tea. I was quite disappointed last time. No, just a standard tea bag. Fair enough. Well, well, this is good. We're literally seconds in and we're talking about tea bags. Um, <laughs> I'm sure our listener will enjoy that thoroughly. We will move on. Okay, so today we've got a slight change uh, and I'm really proud to given given our, our first welcome our first special guest, which is Hannah Tempest. Hi Hannah. Hi, hello. How are you? Hannah. We we're very good. Well, thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate your time. Oh, no worries. And how has your week been? I, sh- I think I should start off with small chat. Uh, yes, the small chat. Um, well, my week has been great because I'm off work. So I have been um, walking my Irish setter around and um, playing Final Fantasy VII the remake. So pretty good day off. Brilliant. Yeah. Amazing. Brilliant. And uh, yeah, every time I'm talking to someone in a meeting, it's, the subject of choice is always Netflix. What's on Netflix? But I seem to be the only person not watching a lot on Netflix. Hmm. Okay, well, I did. I did in the entire of series two of the Umbrella Academy yesterday as well. So I'm up. To, if you want to talk about that, I'm happy. I to did. Talk about that I have heard about that. Yes, um, someone was talking to me about it. It sounds very good. So maybe I will have to watch. I think it. you should. I think you should. It's it is good. <laughs> You've gone full week off mode, haven't you? There, you've done fun of fantasy, dog walking, yeah, and an entire season on, and, on Netflix and in a day. Only my first day off. I have to pack a lot. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I don't amazing. Take much time off, so I like, yeah, I go full on. <laughs> That's amazing, and I'm in a way even more honoured that we've persuaded you to come on our little <laughs> podcast on your day off, uh, wow, week off. Yeah, it's fill the time for sure. Always working, aren't you, Hannah? Always working. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, hardly working yet. <laughs> <laughs> So um, let's get on with our drinks. Um, normally, and this feels a bit odd, normally we record on a Friday and it feels like it's the end of the week and it feels like we deserve the drinks and today we're doing it on a Monday. <laughs> so it does feel a little bit odd, I have to say, on a school night. It does. But um, anyway, let's continue with it. Um, Keith, do you want to start? Yeah, okay, doke. So I have a beer from uh, a brewery that's local to me um, called Loose Cannon down in Abingdon. They've been around about 10 or 11 years. Uh, I chose this one because I think it quite nicely paints the picture of the way I contribute to this podcast. This is a uh, an IPA called Random Words. Random Words. Very good. It's I like it. big, big, bold hop aroma with medium bitterness. Has it got random tasting notes? Um, you've got a few tasting notes, but oh, I just spilled it on my keyboard, so I can't read them out. <laughs> I just tipped it sideways to read them because they handily printed it sideways. But yeah, right. 
Bear with me. Okay, but what's it like? One rating out of five? I'd give it a probably middle of the road, three and a half. Okay, okay. That's good enough. It'll keep me lubricated for the next hour. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> um, Sam, then. Uh, well, I'm, I've been looking forward to this. Uh, I have, from a brewery local to me, Siren Craft Brew, uh, I have Origin Story, which is an imperial stout. Um Bad news is it's 10%, so by the end of the episode, I'm just going to be talking gibberish. Um, <laughs> but it is quite literally one of the best beers, if not the best beer I've ever had. It is way up there, five out of five. Uh, they use 20 different malts in the beer, which I think Blimey. shows you how much they uh, they put into it. It really is lovely. I would thoroughly recommend it. And in, I, I never really know what the difference is between a stout and an imperial stout. Do you know? Uh, honestly, no, but Imperial Stouts tend to be twice as alcoholic. Okay, so it's not just a gravitas, <laughs> it's kind of, some kind of, yeah, they're just slightly more powerful. Yeah, we should, maybe we should, maybe we should become more knowledgeable about beer before we talk about it. Well, I remember last, uh, yeah, I remember last time I got caught out with APA, I couldn't remember what it was, but yeah, we, <laughs> occasionally we do get stumped on these things. I'll tell you what, throughout the episode, I will Google the meaning of imperial beer and maybe we can come back to it at the end and we can okay okay let's do that advice try to keep the tapping noise down by the way while we're recording (laughs) (laughs) um and hannah um welcome um what have you got today okay so um i'm i'm not i've not had this before so i have um a vegan gluten-free non-sucrose sugar Apple, ginger, and acai alcoholic sparkling water. Which oh, my God. Before, and it came free in my food delivery service this week. So I almost <laughs> accidentally drank it um, at, like, 9 a.m. and then noticed the word alcoholic on it. Uh, <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll save that for tonight. <laughs> That's quite an alarming breakfast, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it just looked like a nice... Um, yeah, like apple juice, but then I saw, yeah, it had the big alcoholic words on the bottom. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm having. I haven't opened it yet. I'm going to make that noise on your sound recording. Sorry. That's fine. Slurp away. You win the award for the longest drink name ever so far, and it's only episode four. It's um, it's not good. So, yeah. Oh, uh, really? What? Just ginger in it, I would I'm think. Malbec, to be honest, but I thought, oh, on a Monday. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it is a bit it's a bit risky isn't it on a monday <laughs> it is with me yeah because one glass turns into a bottle real quick so uh, <laughs> safest with the the vegan can of acai or whatever Ooh, yeah vegan i guess uh, maybe it makes some people feel good that it's vegan i don't know wait maybe for a vegan maybe that might work i had a vegan water the other day <laughs> Did vegan came, water came out the tap yeah it was lovely <laughs> lovely all right well, like, um, i think we're gonna have to axe this whole segment because we've been doing this what three months now and our first guest has just completely outdone us <laughs> it's embarrassing really i give given a free uh drink <laughs> a free one didn't even pay. I, I, know. I didn't even pay for it <laughs> go on graham what's yours tipple oh mine is called baby-faced assassin and it's by Roosters Brewing Company, 6.1%. It's a pretty strong one. 
Um, it's a kind of citrus tasting note. It says uh, grapefruit, apricot, mango, mandarin. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm not sure it does taste of any of those, but it's all right. It's, it's kind of nice. Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's, it's nice. I was going to get another one called Broken Leg, but I decided that was a bit of a downer for the... Um, <laughs> For the podcast, so I've, I went for the assassin. I thought that was a little bit more vigorous, but anyway, yeah, it's good. I, don't know, I like it. I don't know if anyone noticed that, but the way the way Keith professionally segued onto asking you about your drink sounded like he's got a, a nickname for you um, of Tipple because he said, Tipple. "What's yours, Tipple?" <laughs> I don't know if anyone else found that really amusing, but I just or did I'd he say Tickle? Out. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> neither of those words he should be using to refer to you either um, way it sounds like we've all drunk too much but anyway <laughs> lose 10 percent. i'm gonna i'll pipe down i'll pipe down no it's um, absolutely fine it's clearly a strong one should we talk about some um product related stuff we should yes so obviously we've got hannah on on the panel today um now do you want to, do you want to describe a little bit about your role because your role title is head of experience delivery isn't it so i work for um an experience agency uh called nomensa and um what we discovered a while ago was that w- one thing our clients really struggle with and i think lots of product teams struggle with is that um Often you can have really amazing research and you can have amazing designers and really great developers. But if you were to look at the thing that got developed and try and draw a thread between it and the research that happened, often there's a bit of a disconnect. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I guess what my role is, is helping clients and helping us in terms of how we, you know, build things, deliver things um, to get research to be kind of represented at every stage through design, through development, through QA testing, all of these things so that um, you do actually make meaningful research, you know, stuff, which is what we're all up to. Right. Um, Yeah. I don't know. That's been my experience of like the things getting lost in translation, I suppose. I don't know. What, What do you think? You ever feel like that in your projects or the work you do? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 we, it does often happen, and I think for many different reasons. I suppose sometimes the, the project changes; just the aspiration of the project might change, and therefore some of the research might be superfluous. And and other times, yeah, you're right; it just doesn't feed through into the final product. Mm. Um, but often, when you're in a time box situation, often you know there's a kind of moment where you run out of time. That's basically what happens. And therefore, yeah, you run out of development time or design time, whatever it is. So you must start making big cutbacks to what you're trying to deliver. Yeah. And yeah, it just doesn't quite end up the way you want it to be. Yeah. And, and every, every product's like that. Like every product is sort of, um, you know, iceberg shaped in that you can see the product sticking out the surface. And underneath that is sort of a much larger history of kind of compromises and changes and, things that had to be um, left behind to, to make what's there. So, you know, it's kind of natural that there's a lot of that. I guess it's my role is trying to bring a bit more of that balance and try and get, um, I like to think of it as kind of like mindful development in that, you know, um, we're trying to be really, really intentional about the things we're doing mm. and the things we're 
cutting and I'm I'm a big fan of cutting so this isn't a get more in sometimes it's like let's mindfully get rid of that crap right now you know so so I guess some of this comes down to prioritization right is that kind of what some of the methodologies you might use yeah yeah definitely definitely prioritization and just um creating um you know because I work for an agency creating models but um you know we're trying to prioritize and um throwing uh, I often throw a Venn diagram out there which is sort of um user needs and business needs and technology requirements or needs and that that sweet spot in the middle is what I'm aiming for in terms of what what needs to be made I suppose and then there's like also uh so I I um I went to art school I did fine art originally and I do think sometimes you just need to leave a bit of space for you know the that kind of magic stuff ideation or creativity or accidental discovery that is really hard to do when you're up against it but um, I think it makes a big difference you know and in how everyone feels about what they're working on. Mm. Do you think we've finally moved away from the kind of ta-da designs where you you present your designs and that's the thing you're you're promising uh, to your stakeholder or to your client it feels like we've we've moved on from that now I think so but every time I think so I get a client saying where's your tada moment I was waiting for it <laughs> so... uh, really yeah no I don't think I don't think we've moved on from that I think it depends a lot on the kind of constraints you're working in but I see a lot of projects start with really great intentions and loads of research and really well-intentioned you know well-meaning thought Uh, and then it comes to scheduling it in as a project and I feel like the area I represent here as software developers I feel like we're always the bad guys because we always have to say no that's going to take ages we've got to we've just we've only got this time this is all we can do so I guess the challenge or the, the the thing I'm really trying to get better at all the time is how can we lose less of that valuable research and still bring something in on time yeah well that's I think I think the way you've described that process is probably pretty key to the stuff I'm trying to switch around in that um if we use um developers and designers to be fair as sort of gatekeepers which distill research from its raw form into like a smaller less potent version at every gateway um we probably won't whereas if we work in a truly collaborative way at the beginning researchers designers developers together Mm -hmm. uh, i think we can create amazing features that don't then form a sort of um not combative exactly uh relationship but you know if you feel like you have to be the gatekeeper because some some designers got like some idea and you're like that's gonna take me ages and there's no point uh you know outrageous how dare a designer have an idea (laughs) don't pay people to think what we uh what we want is that everyone has those ideas together so that that when designers are thinking of great ways of, um, you know, maybe visualising or kind of um, uh, manifesting stuff. Equally, developers are there going, well, if you do it, if you do it like that, it's really hard. But if we change this slightly, it would be much, much easier. And kind of, I suppose, just trying to make it less linear and make it into more of a 
an actual um, collaborative kind of squad experience, which um, is really, really hard for everyone. Yeah. Because, uh, and, and I speak as someone who's been a UXer, a designer and a developer. So I 100% understand uh, all of the different <laughs> parts of this and how mm. difficult it can be on, on everyone's part. But I think the the aim, I hope, is that, the, that we can kind of create something um, uh, better, you know, larger than the sum of its parts by kind of working together on it rather than mm. yeah, gatekeeping our part and going, well, design wants it like this or <laughs> dev like this or the research wants it like this. It's like, how do we actually make that all go together into something, uh, yeah, you know, meaningful? So the observation I have, so I, I remember way back 20 odd years ago, um, I was lucky enough to go on one of the Jakob Nielsen training courses. And mm-hmm. one of the things I remember distinctly from then was, I, I can't remember the exact percentage, but there was um, it's, it's some comment or guideline that you need to be spending about to, or to allow to spend about 10% of your project budget on on research to drastically improve the um the effectiveness effectiveness of the product that comes out of the end of it um spin forward to now i I can probably count on my single hand uh, the number of projects i've been involved in 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 that time where we have had a distinct budget or distinct time at the start or during a project that that, you know Mm. actually specifically written down that we are able to go and do research build it in to this thing that we're doing i just what 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 do you think the reasons are for that because i mean it we all i think we're all saying it's a sensible thing to do It, it it brings better results but i wonder why more businesses aren't aren't tending to take it seriously Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, well, if I could answer that, I'd probably be getting a pay rise. But, uh. <laughs> I guess. I guess one thing I was I was going to say, um, Hannah, is is there a, is there a special source? Are there things that make this kind of collaboration, this kind of cross cross um, uh, cross uh, discipline collaboration, work in your eyes? Have you seen it work in some places and not in others? And what are the kind of symptoms of it not working? Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, yeah. Um, oh, this is going to sound really cheesy. I don't want to come on and be like the cheesy agency person. <laughs> no, that's fine. Carry on. But I am going to. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think um, we talk a lot. Uh, and like, right, forgive my terminology because what it means is cool, but it, it does sound... Uh, how are we with swearing? We're not swearing? We're not swearing. We're okay? We don't normally swear, but we'll forgive it if you do. I you thought are, I was going to be the first person to swear, but actually, you, were, you, you that would be amazing. So please carry on. We can <laughs> we can bleep. That's fine. It can be a bit wanky, is what I was going to say, because <laughs> um, it's about it is about psychological safety, and psychological safety within a team just means um, that you're not going to be pulled up on stuff if it's not like no one's looking for someone to nail against the wall if something doesn't work or something yeah. doesn't go right um but it equally means that you have psychological psychological safety enough to say no i don't agree with that or that's stupid like that's psychological safety doesn't mean we're all like sat around patchouli oil kind of best friends club you know it can mean that actually we're able to feel safe enough to have quite like robust arguments and quite difficult mm. conversations um but many many 
companies I've worked with um, kind of do that, um, and there's a proper term for it, but um, non-cordial silence and agreement throughout a project. <laughs> like yeah. they kind of, um, it's better to just agree even though they'll probably move away from that meeting, that stand up, whatever it is, and and not be happy about that that situation, um, and and that's a team that doesn't feel psychologically safe. Uh, whether they're causing that or not is another conversation, I suppose. Do you think? Do you think this is one of those qualities where a lot of companies think they have it, but the reality is is far removed from that? I definitely do, and I think it. it um, it goes hand in hand with how agile companies are, how agile companies think they are. And um, I've worked with some companies who are, you know, absolutely certain they're, they're incredibly agile and they they do the stand-ups and they do the sprint reviews, so they know all about agile. <laughs> um, but then you're not allowed to, to disagree with the kind of group uh, dynamic and maybe... Um, if you have a difference of opinion, it's it's sort of you're asked to shut up about it. <laughs> mm. um, or equally, you have one person who's very, very um, forthright or confident or just domineering. And actually, if you look at all the decisions, they're there, one person's decision. They're not the team's decision anymore. Um, and that's, you know, that's equally um, problematical, I would say. Um there's, yeah. a, there's, there's a a guy called Marty Kagan. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's uh, written quite a few books on product management. Um, and one of the things, I don't think it's his term, but he's taken it from someone else's. Um, and it is strong opinions loosely held. And I love that kind of mantra mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, the fact that me, Sam and Keith are still talking to each other after all the conflict we've had over our uh, <laughs> few years working together <laughs> shows that we actually did have that safety net, that we did trust each other. And, you know, we definitely did fall out on a number of things uh, while we were working together. (laughs) (laughs) But I think think it was constructive. I think it was helpful. And we did did generally come to a conclusion. Mm. Um, And I think that's the, the essence for me of true collaboration. It's not about everyone joining the same kind of flow, it's about actually being quite vigorous with each other yeah. and actually trying to find that center of gravity, which Absolutely. actually isn't that easy. Yeah. Uh, co- collaboration doesn't mean agreeing. Uh, those are two different terms. And um, mm. collaboration can mean absolutely not agreeing, but uh, we decide to move forwards in a certain direction and continue to to look at things. And that's that's a great way of doing things. If we, If we disagree strongly on one point and at some point we have to we have to move forward in one direction or another and continue to monitor it and that's incredibly productive mm. because um you have to just be willing to uh you know be wrong any second and i think um i do think ux and ux practitioners are quite good at, at this and i think it's because if you've put your work in front in front of sort of end users for enough years, your kind of ego has been battered away to sort of a fight. <laughs> and, uh, as all of your wonderful, clever interfaces and ideas are uh, ignored and destroyed by um, real people. So, uh, <laughs> I see, think- I I always thought it was because UX people were were really deeply thoughtful and intelligent people. You're saying it's just because you've been batted down for years. <laughs> you've <laughs> You've developed this kind of thick skin. 
Maybe, maybe. I think it could be both, maybe. I don't like, I don't know. I mean, I don't consider myself hugely thoughtful. I definitely like, I finding this, the whole format hard because um, usually, Graham, as you know, I'm a, a big uh, gesticulator and face puller and uh, a pointer and, you know. Um, I, I, this is why we had you on. And you, can still, you can still do all of that. It's just <laughs> and that's that sort of yeah that's uh, that's been lockdown hasn't it I've just been um mm. yeah, gesticulating in my uh box room for four months now so <laughs> I, I guess one of the things that um because you're obviously um from a big uh, UX consultancy um and when you approach a company and maybe the culture isn't quite the fit and for that kind of culture of collaboration and safety nets, as you were talking about earlier, how do you kind of move that company into the right place? And I, I guess the other thing is, um, uh, what, uh, what, what kind of, what, what kind of problems might you come across when you're trying to ha- make that happen? Yeah. Um, well, I'm sure lots of people have lots of different ways of doing these things. What I've found the easiest route in is, um, is to start small and to prove value early. And, um, you know, maybe lots of people won't accept the idea of this highly collaborative, trusted team who can work things out without interference. Mm. But most people can accept the idea of evidence-based decision-making. Um, and if we start with that, um, the rest kind of comes comes from that, I would say. Um, once mm. you've started agreeing that actually designs aren't about um you know the most expensive person in the room's subjective opinion of what the right blue is but is about um you know the the understanding the rich understanding that you have of users that you have kind of understanding of their behaviors and mental models not just preference you know we're not trying to just validate subjective preference we're trying to answer kind of deeper questions i suppose yeah and i i suppose um because you are um selling a service to clients they're a little bit more open to it because they are coming to you for help is that the truth or is it something a little bit more complex than that it's i think it's true that whoever their boss was who signed the check to get some agency (laughs) agrees um but if you start you know and, and often this is the challenge i suppose is that you're asked by by someone's boss to go and take that team and make them into this trusting collaborative team. And mm. the person is there sort of like, well, who are you? What have you, what are you bringing? Uh, you know, I can yeah. do this. I was doing this fine without you actually, or, you know, whatever it might be. So um, there's always that kind of proving moment within a project that I think you just have to go through as part of a trusting partnership. You need to, prove your value early and you need to make it visible and you need to show uh impact as soon as possible um and I think I mean that's an agency thing but I think if you're starting any project any team that's probably true right make make value early and then build on that you can't can't say look just leave me alone for two years and it and I'll come up with something great you kind of got (laughs) to incrementally show value right yeah, I mean, I think I think I've tripped up on that. Being completely honest, in a couple of companies where I've tried to sell the idea of collaboration and safety net, and actually the companies really worry about well, when are they going to start seeing the results? And yes. uh, so you have to be very mindful of that. 
and make sure that they have a, a clear inclination about when they're going to start seeing something. Um, but it is a, it is a leap of faith. There's no doubt about it. And I'm sure it is, whether you're an external consultant or whether you are working in-house, it is a leap of faith for everyone because, you, well, the essence is you don't really know whether that safety net is going to work. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I have to say I've never, you know, I've worked on quite a few projects now and different companies and I've never, ever seen a client's project made worse by having insight as part of it. I mean, I think that's, you could say right now, let's de-risk that immediately. That won't happen. You won't have a a worse product. Will you have a more painful time getting there? Yeah, quite probably, uh, because change hurts, doesn't it? Mm, Yeah, absolutely. That's a profound statement. I was just taking that in. Just gonna, yeah, I'm just going to sit here for a bit and think about that. That's half a can of vegan uh, hard. <laughs> we, can, we can edit this bit out. Yeah, don't worry, I'll edit the pause out. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I'll, be, I'll be completely honest. I've been in companies where you get this flip and it happens. It used, it used to be very commonplace. You work in a company and they would flip from going external to going internal and then vice versa. Um, and it is incredibly hard for the people working internally and probably hard for the people coming in externally as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I have seen it from both sides. And of course, uh, of course, early in my career, I used to get really frustrated with it. But now I see the benefit of being objective. And I can see how when you get an HCM, in the same reason that I hired you in at that time, there was there was a perspective that you brought, which was really powerful, especially to the senior management team, which somehow internally you don't always get across. Um, so I think some of the insights that you were able to come up with really did drill home and really did um, manifest in the, the people who needed them to be delivered. Mm-hmm. I do think you need an outside perspective, don't you? And um, one of the things I try and uh, impart on teams that I'm sort of working with is all I want to do is is treat the team that's there, you know, they're the subject matter experts as far as I'm concerned. What I'm trying to do is, as an objective person, is help them get the stuff. They probably already know what they need to do, but they need to find a way of either selling it in to their bosses or understanding, you know, the nuance of their users so that they can make a successful product from it. Um, or, you know, they need someone to agree with them so that they can get the money. It's quite often uh, part mm. of it, you know. And so um, I think you can, you might think it's a com- combative relationship, but it's, it's really not meant to be. It's very much meant to be a kind of um, someone to help them get all of the thoughts, ideas, um, you know cool stuff that they've wanted to do maybe for you know maybe for like 10 20 years I've, I've worked with clients who've been in their job for like 40 years and they've been trying to do some of these things for all of that time you know yeah. so, um, they know how to do it they know what needs to be done but they need the tools and kind of maybe some of the mechanics to just either get funding for it or prove the point or get the evidence together to to make their case you know and um i think that's something that you get from an agency you know you've got a good agency you get a bad agency you get something completely different i think graham just just to pick up on something you, you kind of um started to talk about there is uh, earlier on in your career well certainly earlier on in my career um 
whenever an agency is brought in to do um, something that was usually part of my role, I used to get a bit, mm, why, why is this happening? I don't really understand why. Uh, but as as you grow into your role and you spend a number of years in different places and you understand more about how business works and about yourself, you you, you sometimes realise that actually a, a business needs to um, needs me to do the things that I'm probably best at and focus on that for success. Yeah. Um, and actually, yes, they, they, if they recognise that there is a need for insight and there is a need for research, then bringing in expert external help is an absolutely no brainer. And it can really, yeah. be really, really helpful. So I think, yeah, over time, I've I've definitely got more and more used to um, um, spending time working with external agencies on this kind of thing. You know, start at a starting point where, in the late nineties, I was you know designing and doing little bits of research. It, doing it all yourself is it, cutting corners a little bit. And I think as well, the big thing to note is it probably takes a little bit of bias out of out of a research situation, which is actually incredibly important when you when you're doing research for insight. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree. I think often when external agencies are brought in is because they're, they're dealing with something quite contentious in the business mm-hmm. or very high impact. So you need that objective kind of view. You need someone to come in and look at it without uh, a sense of, you know, empire building within the business or whatever that is. Um, and, and having that clarity of thought means that it feels like it'll get more buy-in, um, which I think, I think is important. Um, yeah, but I think um, I, I think of, often it can it can really work. Um, but I, and I think most the most of the agencies I've worked with who have been really successful in their roles they, they've been very collaborative, as you say, Hannah, with the internal teams because they have the domain knowledge. I, mean, I guess that's quite kind of important, and also uh, they know the, the the environment in which they're working and the, the politics and the the hierarchy in those companies can often be quite critical. Mm. And and yeah, that shouldn't be underestimated. You know, there's um, many times we've come in and had great plans for things to do, and everyone's super happy. And then it can't happen because of um, structural things, organisational things, and and then that's something you have to hand over to that team and say, I can't change that. You know, <laughs> unless yeah. someone asks me to. <laughs> so from a from a development perspective from a kind of software developer perspective i've heard kind of a few a few things in this conversation around um you know the team you know maybe suggesting oh we don't need you or you know what why are you here why are you replacing my job actually i can't think of a single case where where we you know i've ever worked with an agency and the team hasn't turned around and gone God, these these guys are great, specifically for UX. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, mainly because it meant we didn't have to work with Graham um, on occasion. <laughs> but, no, but 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 seriously, I think actually we just want to work with people who've got good ideas and who who like to work with us and who like to you know collaborate. And whether that's someone internal or someone external, I don't think it quite makes a difference when you get the right people together and the team clicks and you have that kind of almost spark moment, but for a team, not, not a spark of an idea, but, but the team gels, then suddenly every problem is, is much more solvable. And you can, you can, I think the, um, to go back to a conversation earlier, collaboration is disagreeing well, 
and being able to disagree as a team. And I think if you can if you can have that, then then you've sold everything. I guess the the trick as someone coming in from an agency is to establish that position and establish it quickly. And that's how you yeah. then truly deliver value, right? And, I'd, you know, I think it's worth saying as well that um, it, it doesn't always work out. Sometimes, um, you know, the, the, the thing is when you're, when you're in, in, and I've been in-house, um, uh, not, not for a little while, but I have, I have been in-house and I do remember um, disliking the agency that was brought in to do my job. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, you know, one of the things that I've really struggled with sometimes is that um, you, the relationship is a little skewed. And if someone you're working with sees you not as a collaborator, but as a resource that they're paying for, um, then that team just won't work. It, it will never work because their view is, well, I'm paying you. You do what I've, I want you to do. I want you to make it look like my department should be doing this. It's you know, the kind of thing that's happened uh uh, a long, long time ago, um, but you know, if if you have sort of people like that within teams or people with, like that within organisations who are not looking to collaborate but are looking to basically have you know get get their value for money, um, then then yeah, I don't think you get you don't get psychological safety and you don't get trust and those things are really really necessary to to, to be able to do like productive work and disagree productively. Well, it's it's people, isn't it? It's just yeah. people getting on with people. Because I've in the same vein, I've I've worked with um, I've worked with people in an agency who've said before, "Think, oh, well, I don't care. I'm going to be gone in in a month." Right. And it's like you know they've actually said that, and I've got wow, really? Okay. <laughs> well, what are we doing here then? What's the point of this? Why? Yeah. You know, yeah. Equally, there's lots of people who come into organisations from agencies and end up getting a permanent job with them. I've, I've heard that so many times. Yeah, it happens. They're that successful. <laughs> we had to change our contract. It happens so often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can I can see that. You know, you you put out your your, your most talented people, and suddenly they're, they're like rock stars. There, I mean, it's, it makes it's sense. Enthusiastic people who are, are really keen to like solve a problem. Sometimes they do. They go, I can't solve this problem from the outside. I've got to get inside to solve it. Yeah. You know, in, the, in some ways, it's, um, you know, they're, they're kind of like a victim of their, well, not a victim, but, you know, they're sort of, because they are so uh, driven and, and it's kind of why you look for people like that in agencies, but it does mean sometimes they go rogue because they're uh, just mm. more, more enamoured by the problem than by who they work for. <laughs> I'm curious, does it happen the other way around, Hannah? uh it has yeah yeah it definitely has um and certainly i i've had um you know a few uh people who i've worked with as clients who have, have then kind of you know maybe um wanted to move over and then you know mm. whether it happens or not is a sort of another another question but there's definitely some cross-pollination and it's i don't know um you guys all work kind of all over the place, don't you? None of you are like London-based, are you? Not yet, no. Not at the minute. Not at the minute. Nope. I'm not either. I'm in. I'm in Bristol, and in, in Bristol, you've got quite a, a kind of like you know a smaller network compared to London, and you'll meet the same people in different roles in different places over and over again. And um, 
so you know you you want to make sure that you you have good strong relationships with all the people you've worked with worked for because yeah the next job you get on you're like oh you know and I have had what happens an awful lot is that I'll have a client who we do a great project with they'll leave the company and when they get to their next company some you know maybe the first thing they'll do is give us a call and be like do that again for this place now please (laughs) (laughs) so that's that's a really interesting point that you make about london though do you think um do you think different success criteria apply for agencies in london because there's so much potential uh yeah there's so many potential problems to solve and clients to sure really I mean um you know a lot of our clients are in London I guess we're just not um when I I have you know I worked in London before I moved to Bristol and um the main difference I found was just the lack of um uh you know legacy with with projects so you know I've I've had clients that I've been working with for three years plus from Mm. an agency and as a me personally working with with certain clients that would never happen in a in a London role because people the you know the market's so liquid you just move on quicker. Than, yeah. So mm. um, it's a different, it's a maybe different problem, different challenge. I don't know. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think it is different anyway. These are these are the kind of bizarre topics that we explore on this podcast. <laughs> is it is it different in London? Well, yes, obviously. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I often um, often when I, I go for roles for, for new companies, they, they compare the kind of industry sector I've worked in and, and kind of say, well, you've done this before, therefore you must be good in that area or you're used to that area. Do you think that um, there are particular industries or sectors that are actually really good at providing this psychological safety for uh, product development teams? Um. Well, the ones I've had a lot of success with are actually um, financial companies and fintech companies in particular. And I think that's just because that is their bread and butter. You know what I mean? That That's what yeah. you do. If you've got a fintech startup or something that you want to pull together, the only reason you exist as a company is because you're able to do that kind of teamwork of bringing those experts in and being able to work really effectively together. So um, I do think that- those work well that raises a really interesting counter argument though if i'm playing devil's advocate are those companies good at that because they've got loads of money and they can afford to spend loads of time on research for example well maybe but we could go around in <laughs> circles there couldn't we and say well do they have loads of money because they spent all their money on research so um i i think um, <laughs> boom <laughs> I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna leave now. <laughs> advocate further on your devil's advocate, um, but I think um, I think there was a good study. Envision did a really great um, piece of research. Actually, I don't know if you you guys saw it, which was just around design thinking and profitability. And um, you know, the the figures are, are clear that that investing in design, design thinking, and user based thinking at a board level in companies means that they make more money um and that that seems to me pretty conclusive and um has certainly been my experience um 
But I tell you what, really, really bad at it is is people who are passionate, invested, and who it's a vocation for what they're doing. Um, And that could be like charities, or it might be you know other kind of third sector organisations. I think I think they can they can struggle because they want to come in and they want to be you know the one to like nail this whatever the problem is social problem or environmental or whatever you know and um to ask them to step back and go well let's go and ask people you know what what they think I think that's quite challenging for them that's that's really interesting do you think then fintech companies are good at this because they're good at making money and they understand that they're good at extracting money from people and they understand that one of the ways that you can do that best is by understanding that person and a way to do that if you're building fintech products is this design research you know that we that we all want to do more of so they just do more of it because that's their mindset i think that could definitely be a possibility um yeah yeah I mean, financial wow. firms are all about the relationship with people, aren't they? And they are, if they're not selling anything physical, it is about a, a feeling or a relationship or an emotion, especially it's the same for kind of utility companies as well, I, I guess. Mm. So the experience becomes really important because you want to, you know, capitalize on that market share. So yeah. it, it makes sense for me that financial companies would put a lot of money into it. It's the same for um, telecoms companies. I remember a time when, uh orange when they were around they used to do these um daily life studies and they were fascinating uh, they would just study people throughout the day what they did at breakfast through their meal times mm. and this all these kind of learnings and insights would go straight into their products and into the product development teams i mean that is absolutely exciting but it's on B- another level to a lot bt did a lot of that as well didn't they because bt bt were one of the first companies to kind of have the notion of a smart home right yeah. they were they were really they had research labs i remember i interviewed a chap from from bt and his opening line was you wouldn't think they did any of this but and it was kind of like well no i i believe they do um so that's in just listening then it's quite interesting the the industries um we talked about them were utilities um financial uh telcos they're all they're all products that actually this day and age it's not exciting anymore you just feel like you have to pay money to have them so again is that another reason why those companies do do more of that because they know that they have to get you know they have to dig a lot harder and probably work a lot harder to actually yeah. make a sale than somebody who's got something bright shiny and less than 100 quid well there's a lot of competition right mm. There's well, a lot of it. We've got is that these are industries that are quite um, regulated. I mean, there's not mm. that much variation between one company's mm. products and another company's products. And if that's the situation, then your differentiator is experience, because yeah. actually the products the same more or less wherever you go. There's a bit of branding stuff and a bit of like nice feelings about the pretty horse running in a field or whatever. But ultimately, your experience is going to be your differentiator. And, you know, you look at challenger banks in particular, that's what they're gaining on. Their experience is great. And their brand and all of those other things and their legacy, um, you know, less important. So, Well, it's it's really interesting, actually, if you look at the market now, because um, I think we can talk publicly about certain companies, but Monzo is not doing so well. Monzo's not not doing well at all. And 
I wonder if this is, you know, they've got, they've won a lot of people by this, you know, plowing loads of money into research. It's a brilliant product. It's much better, but they just don't have the credentials of some of the bigger banks. I don't know. So they have to plow more. One of the challenges they've got is that the system's maybe not caught up or maybe maybe the system knows exactly what it's doing. But um, your your credit rating, if you're using products from a challenger bank like Monza, mm. is less than uh, established banks. And so are they going to be able to overcome that? Again, experience can be a differentiator if it's a level playing field, if it's yeah. no longer a level playing field. then um, are, they, are, they, are these challenger, are the challenger fintechs using you know, as more research to try and level the playing field that's inherently pitched against them. I think they probably are. I think so. I mean, if they're, they're, you know, to try and change banking institutions will be, will be significantly more challenging than creating good experiences. So I wonder is having, having, having read the Monzo um, updates recently, I wonder um, how much of it is, is research, but again, it's a risk of uh, moving quickly and going first, isn't it? When when you're when you're disrupting uh, an industry. So um, I've had Monzo for probably about four years now, but my my good old traditional bank account. Just in the last twelve months, I've seen things like open banking coming onto the app. I'm starting to get push notifications whenever someone pays me or whenever I pay someone. Summaries about what's in my account. I'm really starting to see them you know, pull their socks up in terms of experience. Uh, and a yeah. lot of these things are just things that Monzo's went first with. Um, well, I might challenge that what, what you're seeing is you're seeing better features, whether you're seeing a better experience is maybe slightly different. And I, th- I think that's the problem. Mm. Features can be copied. Um, no, and- you're, you're spot on. You are absolutely spot on because I can see Barclays, for example, copying all sorts of Monzo features and yet I go into the app and I just think, yeah, it's not. No, cool. you've not you've not done it. <laughs> I can see what you're trying to do there, but you've not got it. It just doesn't feel as nice. It's the, the but there's something about the smaller companies. They are nimble. They can chase after the, the changing events. And I think Keith, you mentioned open banking. I'm I'm guessing that that was pretty much the thing that opened up a lot of these platforms. And I think they changed the regulation for becoming a bank didn't they because there was that classic channel four program where someone so became a bank overnight or something um and but I, I'm, I'm wondering whether the regulation is similar in the consumer or the retail world to things like standards and, and micro formats and those sort of things which drive innovation but on the fintech side it's more about the loosening of regulation which drives a lot of that um creativity maybe I think it's dependent on the industry itself. So um, seven, six, seven, eight years ago, um, the industry, uh, the energy industry was shaken up by um, something called the Retail Market Review, which which fundamentally changed how um, energy can be sold in the UK. Uh, and one of the reasons behind it was that the, 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 the larger businesses, the larger suppliers had kind of taken over a little bit. So... Um, quite quite stringent measures are put in place as to how you can talk about and how you can sell and the discounting you can do on energy and and that in turn enabled um some of the smaller players to to start up so it's almost the opposite way around there so i wonder whether it it, it all depends on the the industry vertical and the conditions um at the time that might might have caused it to happen can i ask 
um, can I ask you guys a question just from something you're saying a little bit earlier? Um, mm. You guys all work in-house, right? And you work in like quite large organisations. Yeah. Have you ever been tempted to create an innovation lab? If so, how was it? If not, oh. Yeah, that's, yep. that's a really big question. Um, well, we are our next guest is going to talk about innovation so I, i'm going to sort of leave that area but yes i have been in an innovation team that was set up within a financial institution mm. um yeah you know um god I, i'm really conflicted yes there will be some things they do which will be um uh will be tangential to how the business currently operates so it'll be not won't be business as usual, which is part of why you're trying to do innovation to try and break the mold. Are they truly innovative? You know, is it something quite um, um, different to any other competitor? Probably not. Um, but does it move the business forwards? Yes, it probably does. But I, th- the thing that I most worry about is um, why would you have to create a innovation team uh, in the same business? Um, when actually you can do it as business as usual you can do it as an ongoing concern and make it normal and make it part of the fabric of that company I think that would be what I generally believe but I know that's not always possible it can be very torturous to do it I agree I I haven't worked anywhere where I've, I've set one up but I have worked in a place where one already existed and, you know, I, I completely echo what you were saying, Graeme, all of those things, all those good things that they bring are great. The the the, the surprising thing, or maybe not surprise, surprising is probably the one word, wrong word. The, the thing I learned about this particular place was that almost every project where that team were involved, there was always a quiet conversation afterwards saying, okay, can, can you just let us know kind of the impact we had? And you know, you know what you spent with us. What 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 benefit did we bring? And you know, was it really successful? And it was almost as though um, they were there to try. Well, they they had to prove themselves to the people that were um, supplying them with with money to to be there, which for me kind of kills the idea of innovation in the first place. Because it, you know, that that is probably not the the reason you should have the team there. See, I can speak. I can speak probably from a different from a different angle actually. Um, I'd say I've set one up, but it's not a lab per se. I try to make sure that the teams that I'm involved with get time to work on. Um, we call it R and D time. I don't know something about that kind of sits well with developers, but I try to set up something like Friday afternoons is time to work on ideas. It's time to work on whatever you want. Some people don't like it. Some people prefer not to. Some people, that's just going and reading a book, learning about newest technology or whatever. But for some people, and some of the time, they come up with awesome ideas. Mm. And I can point at, I won't go into specifics for for probably obvious reasons, but I can point at at least two major development projects that happened off the back of something that someone did in a Friday afternoon. And they went, hey, what do you think about this? And suddenly people went, oh, God, yeah, that's awesome. Um, and, and sure, the final product looks very different from that. But I am a massive believer in the value of letting 
letting technical and creative people play for a I, bit. I to- <laughs> totally agree, Sam. I mean, I remember in one company, um, I was a developer came to me with a POC for an iOS uh, app, and it wasn't me, was it? God. No, it wasn't you. No, thank God. That would have been a terrible idea. Uh, but it, but this was at a time when uh, you know there was a craze for everyone to have an app. You know, was, I can't remember when it was, but um, so we we just created a project around it and spoke to the CEO, and he said, "Ship it." Well, I don't know why he said "ship it," but you know what I mean. <laughs> but um, and it worked, ship it. And, it, and, it, and it went live. Yeah, he literally did. He pointed at me. He said, "Ship." Did it. he have one of those red buttons on his desk that he just hit? <laughs> ship it. I could go into a lot more details on that, but I won't on this podcast. <laughs> um, but I was going to say, just to extend that point, I, I think if you're in a in an innovation team within a big company, in a big enterprise company, and you've just started on Q1. And you get to Q2 and you've got to report back to the powers that be. What are you going to say? I mean, because a lot of innovation can be a lot of failure. It can be a lot of things going wrong and not really working, especially when you're trying to form that team so that you, as we talked about earlier, that safety net, that you all trust each other and you can all have safe conflict and move, move the thing forward. Actually, it doesn't stack up. So what you end up doing is you start... Um, trying to set people up for failure. You put them in a position where they have to have innovation. So they make shortcuts to get something which is passable. Not only that, not only that, but you set everyone who isn't in the innovation team up to not be allowed to innovate. That's that's why I hate having a team for uh, yeah. innovation. Or I think it's like, oh, you can't possibly do that. You're not in the innovation team. You're not allowed to think. And that's yeah. just, that's just the anti-pattern of what I want to create in a in a team, and and also, also, I mean, I think probably Hannah, you would say the same thing. Innovation comes from those insights from users, and mm. if you form an innovation team from, you know, okay, they might be um, hired guns, really well-known people, high-level consultants, but when they come in fresh, cold to that business, they don't have any of these insights. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and. Um... Sam, I'm interested to hear that some of the things that that came out of your innovation time, not team, um, yeah. made it into like products because this is the challenge I've found with sort of um, dedicated innovation, either labs or you know resources, whatever, is that actually you know you you make this little nimble team so that they can innovate, you know, without all the rubbish of politics and red tape. Uh, and then they do, and then there's all this politics and red tape, and you can't actually make it. Um, so, you know, I think, I guess, this role, like we were talking at the beginning about kind of experience delivery and what it means, I'm hoping that my, maybe my team, my name becomes obsolete ultimately, because my aim is to pass these skills and models into the teams I'm working with on a daily basis. Mm. So that actually everyone's just doing this as standard, and it doesn't become a special team anymore. It just becomes. But do you know things? The, the, I think the observation I would make is wherever I've seen an innovation team, or lab, or or group of people that are specifically dedicated to innovation, mm. it's because there's a desire to shield them from all the red tape and the politics and whatever else might happen. Mm-hmm. But that's the biggest mistake you can make in a company 
Yes. Because to be successful with innovating, you have to navigate that stuff. Yes. You just Absolutely. have to. It's there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to be a designer, the difference between a designer and, and an artist is a designer works within constraints. Yeah. Um, a designer, I mean that as a creative problem solver. I don't mean a, a pixel-pushing person. Yeah. And we're all designers here in terms of what we do, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, without restrictions and without rules, you can't design effective innovation. And so to free yourself of the reality of the company you work for and see what gets made, to me, seems like um, the opposite of what you want to do. I think you want to uh, Sam, your your solution, I think, is a great one, which is to just get give you know everyone the opportunity to innovate. Like you say, how depressing well, think- would be the rest of the company not allowed to? <laughs> <laughs> I've, I mean, I've been in those scenarios where I think um, I won't mention the name of the company, but there was a, lo- a very large company, very well-known company, and they had numerous different attempts at trying to do innovation through different teams, and it, it changed hands multiple times, different people. And actually, I think a lot there was a high turnover in that team. It must have been pretty stressful for them mm-hmm. as well, trying to get traction on these things. And just to kind of uh, follow on from your point earlier, um, when you were talking about, well, if those teams do create innovation, if they truly do create innovation, what do you, then you've got to try and do is bring that back into the business as usual, usual teams. Mm-hmm. And that, um, you have to go through the politics again. Yeah. And well, of course, you will get shunned by those teams that you know don't believe in what you were doing or don't understand why um, there was another team doing this thing. So, so my observation has been doing doing it differently, doing it the the way I outlined earlier, where everyone gets time to to be innovative. Um, the thing that's always surprised me is that when someone comes up with a really compelling excellent idea they've got a nice proof of concept it's like you look at it and go wow more often than not that person say that they're a developer for example they will then go i you know we'll say oh we we should show that to x y and z and they'll go and show these people more often than not at least one of the people in that group where the the intent of the meeting is to try and persuade them that this is a good idea more often than not, one person in that group goes, this is exactly what I've been saying. This is exactly what I've been trying to put into words. And so you have people, because especially in in-house companies, people are pretty aligned to the business problems. Um, at least people who, who try to be, they understand them. But sometimes when you see something brought to life that you've been thinking about, but maybe haven't been able to express properly, um, it doesn't it doesn't build barriers. It, it doesn't, as you might think, it doesn't, Mm. create friction by going oh what's that person doing coming up with that idea they're not an ideas person <laughs> it's it's much more oh what you know that is exactly yeah. what i was trying to say and i couldn't figure out how to say it but now you have let's take this and go and do something awesome we're back to constructive collaboration again i guess aren't we with that safety net i mean um, it's just people it's people working with people that's, yeah. The, yeah. that's the key no absolutely yeah no i agree mm. I'm not. I'm making this out like it's an amazing thing. There've been loads of things that have happened as a result of this that just haven't gone anywhere, um, but but a couple have, and that's I guess that's innovation as well. Right? I, I suppose the other thing is, you know, if you're in a startup and you've got to innovate around, I don't know, some conversion funnel that you've got to make better and make it more compelling, and you achieve that, you just put it into action and it goes live, and then you never talk about it again. Whereas when you're in a big enterprise company. 
wow, this is my thing. This is my thing. And I'm going to tell everyone about it. And suddenly you have hiring managers talking. I don't know. And I think it does happen in some companies though. It will become the prized possession. Um, That's, that's the thing I still haven't figured out though. I I still haven't, we we get innovation out of that. It turns into a big product. It goes, it goes really well. We launch it. But then people are always kind of, well, what's next with this? Mm. And it's like, often the person who had the the original idea has probably moved on because yeah. they like thinking about new stuff and they want to play with things. And they're like, oh, we're solving all different problems over here. I think the transition of a, a, a new Spark innovative product over to a kind of long-term, really well-managed, developed product is really tricky. That's mm-hmm. really, really tricky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think... I mean that's that is the like um, the battle, isn't it? That's going on the whole time. It's innovation versus business as usual, and it, it's not versus because innovation becomes business as usual mm. real real quickly, and then so then you've got to look after it and nurture it and maintain it. And uh, maintenance is you know less uh, sexy and interesting, but actually yeah. much much more important in many ways. That the thing is uh, fed and nurtured and kind of. Um, given all of the kind of resources that it needs that's i mean that's real hard you know that's well this comes to me this comes back to having a a really well balanced team mm-hmm. because you know a team of you know a team is more than the sum of its parts or whatever the ridiculously cliched saying is um but you've got to have people who like taking products and developing them longer term and you've got to have people who like coming up with brand new cool innovation and sometimes those people are the same people but but often not and so I do I I always wonder this when I'm when I look at the hiring process for really small startups because they look for innovative quick thinkers kind of really switched on people but it's kind of like yeah but as soon as you become successful you're going to need a whole different group of people Mm. to the people that you've got now so what you know what do you there, think there, I think I think there was a there was one internet company I worked in where they did realize they had all the wrong types of people. They had too many of the people who would shape ideas and not enough of them to nurture those ideas. So mm-hmm. you you're, you're absolutely right. You have to have that balance. I think it's Belbin, isn't it? Talks about the different roles within team dynamics, and it is important. You do need people to reflect and think about things, and equally, you need someone to just charge ahead and try something. And then explain it to everyone, mm-hmm. so that it is so much about the balance of that team. Um, yeah. But of course, even now, I think as we speak, there aren't many companies that do hire cross-functional teams together. They are often functional and then put into a fu- cross-functional team. Oh so yeah, maybe that's kind of the way forwards. I think good teams are, are often um, formed in spite of uh, what everyone else is trying to do, rather than uh, by the actions of of companies i think um uh, i'm not trying to plug my other work but uh, <laughs> go for it go on <laughs> have you got a book as well <laughs> i'm sure our our listener will be thrilled to read it yeah. <laughs> yeah well you could join my other two viewers of my um, <laughs> uh, no i did a talk a couple of years ago which i've continued to use as a kind of model for product development which is um based on uh, Darwin's origin of species and it's called the struggle for existence and I've, I called it that because actually um, it's not 
it's not the evolution and the change that is hard. It's it's the continuing to exist. Um, and so I had kind of used some of the stuff that Darwin talks about around evolution and kind of put it in a digital context. And um, one of the things that, that I talk about is about instilling a team with not the desire to create new things, but the desire to evolve things. And I think if you can make that your focus, um, you know, I, I kind of like would compare, say, um, your MVP product with the um, rubbish uh, eyes of a kind of starfish, which have like these eye spots that can just just about um, tell if they're in light or dark. They, they can't like, you know, see color or anything like that. Um, but what are, what else do they need, right? They're just looking up the whole time. There's nothing for them to see. Um but what a team's motivation would be is to take that MVP eye spot and re-articulate all of the parts of it into something better or something for a new purpose. And yeah. uh, it's about, you know, finding new um, environments in which to operate potentially. Um, so, you know, maybe your product doesn't change. Maybe your product just moves into a completely different space or um, sometimes innovation is a, is about pruning it's about getting rid of stuff and uh you know i talk about moles devolving their eyeballs so they could have more brain power for their uh sense organs and um <laughs> if you think of your product in terms of a mole's nose you know maybe maybe you can remove a certain thing that you think is really really important but actually if you had all that resource to put into another area what could you do with that and so i just think innovations often thought of as how do you make the new thing move on new thing move on and mm. if we can reframe that into how do we evolve what we have how do we use our resources better um i think we can create like much much better products and also much much better teams who have a a more fulfilling focus of evolving a product into different scenarios or different environments rather than you know make it big, make it big, and end of life, which is, um, you know, more depressing. But that's a really, how do you convince people to do that? Because I'm thinking of several examples that have come out of the um, kind of innovation time I try and build into the teams that I work with. And mm. there's been some really great things that have been new features in existing products that could potentially take that product in a whole different direction but they don't get the same reception as something that's like completely new. So how do you train, how do you like, how do you bring that thinking into a company? I guess that's part of a challenge as an agency, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I use pictures of fun animals and. Uh, <laughs> it's, I might try it. It's a great. You're welcome to use anything you want. I can see it on Monday. I'll be like, right, guys, so this starfish. <laughs> I think uh, it is on YouTube if you want to have a look. But um, <laughs> it's, um, I mean, it is about uh, not just digital maturity, but very much product maturity. And I think this is like the crux of product thinking mm. is product thinking isn't just the, I'm going to think of a new product today and then I move on. You know, product thinking is about how do I, create nurture change the purpose of you know potentially how do I end of life something you know being able to do that in a mindful way is uh 
you know, really, really difficult, right? <laughs> so Sam Sam mentioned um, that he his R&D sessions that his team uh, takes part in have lots and lots of ideas that often just, just get presented and they're great, but they don't go anywhere. So Hannah, how, how many businesses do you see that you, that you worked in um, actually, you know, properly record these and then store them somewhere in a memory bank or file or whatever it is? So actually they can then in six months' time, 12 months' time, 18 months' time, look at the conditions of the market, go back to those old ideas and think, actually, yeah, th- this is going to work now. This has got a much better chance of um, doing something really, really cool. Um, well, um, I'll talk about a company that does it really well that isn't isn't a client of mine, so it's a bit safer. Um, <laughs> but I think, um, you know, in- Instagram have done a very good job of this in that they create um, these themes so they innovate on themes and they create branches of directions that they could go in and then they prune into the one or two that they're going to continue testing and this is kind of like ux research ops kind of thinking isn't it you know where you're thinking about um how do i create um these i call them like thematic pods which are uh, a specific problem so let's not pick a technology and innovate around that. Let's pick a problem and innovate around that with multiple technologies and multiple um, disciplines around. And I think, um, you know, Instagram um, had a, a, their interface designer did a lovely, um, one of those Netflix design shows. I can't remember the name of it, uh, but really, really nice just about the different ways they were going to change um, one of their core functions. And they had, you know, we're doing this one. It's called like, I can't remember it now, but it was something like, um, you know, bookie memories versus uh, listy icons versus, you know, and they were just kind of like human languagey kind of names for the mm. type of thing they were trying out. Um, but, you know, that you could see the branch and like this tree branch thing is, is just such a great analogy to hold, I think, in your mind's eye with these things because a successful tree throws out thousands of branches and then the one that gets the most nutrients and light and is in the best position is the one that succeeds and continues to grow all those other thousands of shoots perished or are pruned or fall away um and and what's left is the branch a solid branch and that's kind of literally agile right what's left Mm. is working software to document the journey you've been on and i suppose research ops looks for a way of creating some kind of uh, pattern repository service model or something that lets us see that history and see those, you know, mm. sorry, I'm mixing my analogies. and back to the iceberg now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We've gone full circle. Uh, there you go. I made it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, no, not in my garden. I mean, everything <laughs> dies in my garden. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully right. that's not an analogy for the for my my work life, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, guys, I think we we've gone we've gone really way over time, which is great because we've had a really good chat. Um, and thank you, Hannah. You've you've spent a really good amount of time with us and a really really insightful talk there. So thank you for your time. Yeah. Um, and okay, so that, that kind of concludes uh, episode four. Um, if you want to subscribe, please do. We are on 
Spotify, on uh, iTunes, and on Google. Um, so please subscribe and you will get the latest ep- episodes straight into your client, whichever you're using. And next episode, we will have another guest, another surprise guest. So uh, we're looking, for that one as- looking forward to that one as well. So thank you, guys. And uh, let's all say goodbye. Thanks, Thanks Bye. Bye, everyone.